This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital work-from-anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360-degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business. Hey, g'day guys, and welcome to Talking to Trailblazers with myself, Jack Corbett, in association with Business News Australia. Today, I'm bringing somebody who to have a chat with me that has global experience with some of the largest brands in the entire world. Travis Erridge is a supply chain specialist and former Melbourne Young Entrepreneur of the Year. How are you getting on this morning, Trav? Good, thanks, Jack. Yourself? Yeah, I'm really, really well, thank you, buddy. But I do have bated breath every time I'm jumping on the phone to anybody from Victoria at the moment. <laughs> um, how are you guys? How, how's everything going down there, bud? Uh, look, to be honest, um, uh, I think uh, frustration is probably the the, uh, the the word at this point. Um, it's sort of a, a quite a split state at the moment between the government's doing the right thing and the government's not doing the right thing uh, by the people. Um, in terms of our business, it's it's actually, um, and it's really bad to say, but it's actually been good for business given that the industry that we're in, in terms of supply chain and logistics and e-commerce has been booming, uh, especially in Victoria during this time, so putting a lot of pressure on supply chains, but in terms of our team, um, you know, a huge risk of burnout. Um, no one's had a break for nine months of the year so far, um, and everyone's been working probably harder than they've worked uh, in their lives with all the video conferencing and uh, uh, remote working, just making it a little bit more complex. Yeah, completely understand that. And I think I understand the frustration. I think frustration can come from lack of um, communication. And I know they're communicating regularly, but I think it's a mixed message and the message lacks continuity and sometimes lacks logic. Like I'm allowed to go to th- to do it this, this circumstance, but then I can't do that exact same thing in my own home with my nearest and dearest. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm from a, a, a someone that, that has grown up in Australia, thinking that uh, you know we, we are one country. Um, it's it's very clear to us that the state governments have have rules and and have uh, powers far beyond what we all probably imagined growing up. Um, and and I think that sort of that statism that's that's come out um, is probably one of the negatives out of the whole um, experience for me. Um, and, and in terms of you know each state protecting their own state rather than thinking about an Australia-wide solution to this. So um, not helped by the Victorians um, not <laughs> bungling the quarantine, which didn't help either. But um, yeah, look, I think I think we've all learned a lot. We've all found out a lot about ourselves and 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 what it means. Um, and I think we all respect our freedoms now. To be honest on the other side of this. Yeah. We, we, we've done sort of eight, eight years of flying weekly uh, interstate or overseas. So it was the first time, uh, and I think it's been six months now, I think end of, start of March was the last flight to Sydney and um, haven't flown. So, yeah, a lot of time back, but um, also I think it becomes quite relentless. The work in terms of the video world, there is no break. You don't get in the car and drive anywhere and talk on the phone. There's no excuse either, right? Like I always remember I used to, oh, Jack, we've got a three o'clock. I'd go, oh, I can't. I'm not going to be back from Brisbane in time. Yeah, that's right. That, that, That created little spaces in the diary, but now you have no excuse. As long as you have that phone in your hand, 
you have no reason you couldn't be involved in a web or conference-based communication, you know? So I agree you're expected to be at 100% good to go, you know, ready to, to build relationships, do business, make executive decisions all day, every day now. But I also notice, and I don't know if you can back me up on this, but I'm noticing a real trend towards people working less physical hours, but actually getting more task completed. I think we are more focused and more productive in the work from home environment than, well, certainly in my business than they have been when I had them working in the office. Oh, definitely. I mean, we're doing a lot more with with uh, less headcount per per job, if you like. Um, so no, no question on that. But but the challenge is, as I said, that, that our guys are still doing a significant amount of hours. Um, and the chance of burnout is pretty significant because if if you, if you get out on the weekend, if you can go down the coast, if you could just get away from Melbourne for a little while for the team, it'd be good. Our Sydney team um, tried not to rub it in on us and say to our Queensland guys, um, but you know, just that little bit of being able to get out on the weekend and go away from your house for a period of time, whether it's one weekend out of two months or something like that, that would be uh, seen as a positive at this point. I completely understand that. And I think go go into this idea then, burnout, um, you know, mental stress. Um, how do other people who, who maybe don't have the same size business that you do, how do you identify that? Because you clearly have. And then number two, how do you address it, address it upon identifying it? If you can see Joe and Jan in the accounts department are stressed. They are literally working round the clock and at the moment, you know, I don't think that they are mentally fulfilled. How do you identify it? How do you address it? Look, we, we, we can identify it by sort of behaviours um, and one of those for, for us is um, what we've noticed if people are turning their cameras off a lot um, in, in conference calls, they're not really present. Um, you know, we, we make a very focused effort to, to be present in video calls as if you're in a meeting, so don't pick up your phone and start texting. Don't be doing emails while you're, while you're present on the, on the phone call uh, and we talk a lot about that, but you notice that there's, a, there's that wavering uh, people not turning up for meetings, people dropping off meetings halfway through the meeting, so just not being around, um, that the stress is too much. And sometimes it's the environment. So we've, we've had four or five people um, of our group that we've clearly identified and have openly um, said that they're under too much stress with everything going on both at home and at work. We also created an employee um, assistance program this year um, so that people could reach out anonymously and talk to someone about how they're going. Um, and so for some of those people, it was moving back in into their mum and dad's house, for example, even though they're 35 years old, just to get away from the, the relentlessness of, of what they were doing. Now, I don't know if that's actually allowed under the draconian laws in Victoria, but it's actually been um, highly beneficial for them to be able to speak to someone away from just going to work and then sitting and watching TV at night because they live at home uh, by themselves. Um but yeah, we also the other week um, we decided to do a virtual painting class, which was quite funny um, as a group. But then we gave everyone the next day off and said no one's allowed to call anyone, and you're not to answer a, fo- a phone call from a client anything. And we sent a notice out and just said everyone is to take the day off. So I think I think you've just got to have those breaks, and, and we're not getting them as much as we normally by nature naturally would have got in in the normal world. Yeah, it's weird because even those that have booked a holiday, like I know for myself, I was intending to take my entire family for my father's 60th birthday to Thailand in the first week of September. Sure. Uh, 
naturally not going to happen now. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, do I do I just lie by my pool and read books for a week, or like do do I just go to work? Do you know? It's kind of like if you actually don't have a reason or something you intend to do with the time, the time itself almost doesn't serve any relevance either. No, exactly. um, so yeah, I can understand that. I want to let me go in a slightly different direction with some questions, Travis. So you you said to me. And it almost it's like you felt bad saying it because there've been so many people negatively impacted. But you suggested fundamentally COVID's been good for my business because we're in um, the supply chain space and e-commerce sales are what up about seventy percent, I believe, on the last the last data I was reading a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, we're all becoming more accustomed to shopping online. But I also then two parts to my question. The other part of that is I was speaking with Jackson Mayer from Versus Global, probably. Jeez, it would have been end of July. Right. He had recently just started a logistics company. Um, so I was like, so you've, you're in a startup in the middle of a global pandemic that started at the very back end of Chinese New Year. I know Chinese New Year is basically blackout zone anyway. Yeah. Nothing yeah. gets done. Straight off the back of it, we had the announcement of the pandemic. Um, have, there, have there been some supply chain challenges? I, could, I would like to... I'd like to believe there there would have been. Yeah, look, I think it, I can sort of describe the the period from from March to today as sort of three clear um, segments for for us and our clients. First, sort of that that mid March through to it's probably about end of April was just complete panic for everyone, and and that's where you saw and an example is we work with Coles, so you saw the bulk buying of toilet paper ridiculous. I don't know what. Anyone thought they were going to run out of toilet paper, but everyone ran and got toilet paper where not, and most of it's produced in Australia. Um, and so you saw this hyper volume or, or, or just ridiculous demand in certain elements of, you know, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, flour, all the essential type elements were, and, and, and our supply chains just couldn't keep up because you can only manufacture. Um, so much over those lines that they're created for for steady volume, and and when they get those peaks demands, or if they're going to do a, a promo, they will they will start to pre they'll bulk bulk it up, or they'll start storing um, for that sale event. So no one was prepared for that. Then so there was just. To utter confusion. Everyone was running around. There was there was no capital in the market. Um, all the capital seized during that time in terms of people trying to find a home for for money, which then affected some of the the development deals that we were doing on building new warehouses. So it was it was yeah, freefall was how I would describe it. Um, then from May through to the end of June, things steadied out and, and things looked quite optimistic in that regard. But we saw a massive rise in e-commerce volume during that point. So whilst we saw an increase by force nature between um, March and end of April, in May, June and July, the volumes went through the roof in terms of e-commerce and that's because people had been forced in and it became the new norm to order things online. So at that point, that was probably the point where we saw a huge influx of requirements from our clients and new clients asking for uh, to re-engineer the supply chain because everyone could then see, okay, this thing has caused an acceleration on, I think it's about five to 10 years worth of e-commerce growth in three to four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you put that into perspective, 
everyone now can can see the trend but doesn't necessarily know where the end is. So for a lot of clients, it's okay. We need to adapt and change our, our supply chain to be able to fulfil those e-commerce orders uh, because they are fundamentally different to fulfilling a store order from a supply chain perspective. So um, that, that, that was a huge growth. And then we went into lockdown too in Victoria and that caused a whole heap of separate issues, which was you've got a national supply chain and one state is locked down, but the other states are open. So it caused massive confusion again into, into people, how the hell they fulfil orders, how they cross borders, how, how we even did construction work, for example, um, in South Australia when we can't get in there to actually project manage jobs. Um, so it, uh, New Zealand, one of those. So it's been sort of two, three parts, um, first being freefall, second being sort of stabilised and trying to understand what the new norm looked like and then the third being got to act. So it's been consistently uh, heavy workload since since June. Yeah, understand that for sure. And I, and I think it's funny how typically what we would talk about being uh, annual cycles or even if you were talking a full economic cycle of seven to ten years, it's like we're seeing our own little micro cycles happening like quarter on quarter at the moment. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 the, the numbers are frightening in terms of um, the the load that it's putting on supply chains. And I think one one thing that we'd been known for was was saving a heap of money for clients as they'd gone through a transformation process. So that was a that was our big call to action. Was you know we're going to come in, we're going to look at every part of your supply chain, and we're going to lean it out to exactly what you need, which includes inventory, which includes everything. We're going to get it to absolutely the fine performance that it needs to get to. And lo and behold, you then have an event like this that then puts massive ripples of, of confusion into, into supply chains and then peaks and troughs and demand. And all of a sudden, everything that, that everyone had strived for for 20 years is now thrown out. And now it's all about flexible, agile solutions. So everyone is desperately wanting to know how big this e-commerce wave is going to be versus what its impact on bricks and mortar retail. Um, but there's no doubt in anyone's mind that the consumer has changed and the consumer is asking for uh, is asking for to get products however the hell they want to get the products nowadays. The, 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 the retailer is not is not driving the demand. It's actually the consumer nowadays. It's a funny concept that we've really had the ability to online purchase for let's call it 20 years approximately. Yeah. Yeah everybody could see the direction in which the consumer was going, but it's kind of like this current economic or global climate has forced that change. And then very quickly people realized it was never a problem to start with. Actually, they, this is more convenient for them. This is a better method. The only thing that was preventing you from doing it was that, you know, we as human beings are just creatures of, of habit. We, we, we just know how we do things. Why do you get fish and chips on a Friday? Well, we've always had fish and chips on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's just the way it works. It wasn't broke, so I'm not trying to fix it. But if I, if I look at your business, <clears throat> what I'm most in awe of and something that certainly um, we did, myself and my business partner, Ryan Tuckwood, when we started our business, ISR Training, we were... We were chasing the biggest names in the business. We knew that the bigger the logos on our wall, you know, the bigger the companies, the brands that we were affiliated with, the bigger we were going to become as a business by default. And when I look at the logos on your wall, whether it be, you know, one of the largest beverage companies in the world, Asahi, um, 
best automotive manufacturers, you know, BMW, Kathmandu, uh, Dulux Paint, you know, probably the largest producer of paints globally, Kmart, Coles. Like, this is some seriously impressive stuff, man. Um, so I want to know from a... I want to pretend you're talking to an 18-year-old that's just graduating and thinking about starting a business. How does someone go about initiating and then maintaining high-quality relationships with our, you know, Fortune 500 or the, the globe's biggest businesses? How do we do that? Uh, yeah, good question. So uh, I think we 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 were lucky, uh, Milan and myself, who started the business back in 2010. We were, we were very lucky in. Uh, we worked for a company called Goodman or Macquarie Goodman, as it was known previously. Uh, and we were really lucky to meet a lot of large-scale businesses through that relationship. So Goodman is the world's or second or largest, I think, industrial property developer in the world. Um, and so they tended to do the biggest um, companies work, uh, everything from mid to, to ASX and, and multinational type businesses. So we were lucky enough to have had a lot of work with those types of clients during that time. Um, but I think it's it's about confidence and, and um, understanding your own ability. I think when I worked at, at Goodman, I didn't quite understand the background and the skills that I'd actually learned uh, during that time and the ability to talk to senior people within those businesses as part of that process. Um, and and when it when the, we actually came out of the last financial crisis, believe it or not, which was the was the GFC, um, and at that point, our whole career, Milan and myself, was we were going to be general manager of Goodman uh, in state, and then to become head of country or whatever it might be. We had this this ideal growth path, and you had no vision of leaving the business ever. That was sort of the so when 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 the GFC comes in and kicks you completely in the us um, it, and, and puts you, and I remember it was uh, January 2009 and I was watching the Australian Open at home because I'd been sacked from work effectively as as had nearly the whole development arm at, at that point. Um, it was a really low point in terms of um, in terms of personal, uh, where you're at, you know, um, it was quite embarrassing, to be honest. You know, you've had this sort of growth path and then all of a sudden you're out of work. Um, and, and I know Everyone would say, "Well, the GFC is that," but it sort of it sort of sparks something in you that's probably a little bit different to what you thought. And and to be honest, it was um, without swearing too much. It was it was who gives a shit, you know? It was sort of the, the, the you know you've got to have a go now. This you is have that, you have that effort mentality, you know. The, the, is, if I've got nothing to lose, then I might as well have a shot. Well, it's a fight or flight, and and you sit and you sit there and you go effort. I'm going to have a go at this thing, right? And and worst case is it fails. Well, I can't go any worse than where I'm at at the moment. So that that was sort of the the spark, I guess that that I didn't even realise we had it in us. Um, and then all of a sudden, adversity produces that that sort of want um, to succeed and never be in that situation again. So um, yeah, so that that was sort of that was the spark. And then so. When you're calling, and I think it was Kmart and Bunnings were our first two ever clients, uh, with Lin Fox not far behind that. Um, and, you know, for us, Lin Fox was easier. We'd done work with Lin Fox, but Kmart and, and Bunnings, they were just straight cold calls. And that was just, you know, um, and it was just persistence. Get me in there. I'm coming in. I knew they had requirements to do a new uh, rollout of DC, uh, distribution centres. 
but it was just get me in there and, and get me going sort of thing. There was nothing that was going to stop us from from picking up that work. And and so from from there on, sort of two years of working almost exclusively with the, those clients, working from home, young kids, young family, um, awesome, awesome time of, of our lives, making money, um, you know, in terms of what we thought was, was what was expected. We were sort of outstripping those fairly quickly. But then it got to a point... Uh, and around about 2012, where where we sort of had to make a decision: do we stay as a two-person business and just enjoy our lives? But it's really hard because you sort of you're eating and then you're chasing food type scenario. So it's it's a really hard lifestyle uh, after a while of, and it's really lonely just being the two of you running separate lives and effectively just sharing business costs. Um, and so we decided at that point that we would start employing and, and starting to grow a team. And and that was probably the, the step change. That was one of the big step changes in our business was making that decision and then having to go and find a lot more work because you've got more mouths to feed and, and, and driving you a little bit further to go harder. Well, I'm from the two of you with the acquisition now of Exact Solutions, which we'll go through in a short second. My yep. understanding is you'll grow to a team of roughly 110 over the coming months. Yeah, so just under 120 at the moment. Um, so, yeah, very close. And, um, yeah, so we've doubled effectively in the last two weeks. Okay, yeah. wonderful. So let, let's, let's get into that then. What um, This is your first major acquisition, is that correct? Yeah, so look at what, what happened. It's a series of events to get to here, but what happened in, in 2018 was everything we'd done turned into gold, if you like. Every every step we made worked. And in 2018, we decided to start um, Asia, our Asia expansion. Um, and at that point, naivety um, kicks in. You don't realise the funding. You don't realise that there's people out there that – they probably don't have your best interests at, at hand because we'd always had a very trusting mentality. Um, and so two things happened in 2018. One is we had a director leave the business unannounced, just decided to go and compete with the business. And um, that caused a whole heap of disturbance and issues within our business. So straight away, we we learned a lot about relationships during that time. And, and we also started a Singaporean office with the aim of expanding for our clients into Asia and uh, what ultimately happened during that time was, A, we just spent a lot of money going nowhere in Asia and, and we subsequently found out after the fact that that person had been off uh, doing their own work uh, while we were paying them. So we, we learned about, about a lot about control, management, process, um, and we also learned a, a lot about a very trusting culture that we had, that our contracts and our and our internal structures were so poor that um, we were wide open for things like that to happen. So that, that was a really important point in our evolution. And, and what we decided to do was let's get a consultant in. For the first time ever, we decided to get an ex-principal of EY to come into the business and just help us structure the business better, uh, talk about how we could grow from a sort of, you know, 45-person business, I think, back then, up to a, you know, 500-plus-person business. Um, how could we do some of those things? So uh, straight away, a lot of financing, uh, accounting change, we got um, we created a structure for the first time. We created a board within our business so that we could get decisions made, which were becoming a bit of management by committee. 
Um, and so people talk about structure inhibiting them. It actually allowed us to do what we needed to do. And, and we always had a flat structure and we'll never change that. But just to have accountability was the key thing for us to, to be able to go forward. And then what we also did in 2019 is we brought a capital partner in um, through a process, which was Next Capital, and, and for, for that with the aim of really doing Asia properly. That was always the intent. Right? We know 30 million people in Australia and New Zealand, 661 million people in Southeast Asia, excluding India and excluding China. So the opportunity of fast, rapid growth is huge and, and, and a really complex supply chain in, in Asia. So so really needed our help, our fast-moving um, consumer behaviour change into e-commerce in Asia. So we saw the opportunity um, and so what we did, we made sure we were backed and financially um, appropriately set up to be able to scale into Asia, which is what we've now done. But what happened during that time was um, obviously with the capital partner, the idea was is there like-minded click click in and make work type businesses that, that fast track some of that expansion growth. Uh, and that's where the exact solutions idea came into play, which was um, whilst a competitor in Australia and New Zealand, um, they'd already started doing work in Vietnam, which was a, which was which is a major growing um, market for supply chains and logistics. Um, and they were already doing work in Japan, Thailand and Singapore. So the opportunity there to fast track some development was was there yeah no that's fantastic and obviously the first thing that jumps to mind when it comes to acquisitions is the teething problems in the merger so is the aim to run that under its own systems and structures as it has been since inception or is the probability that it will now come across and begin to operate more in a tm insights fashion yeah yeah so so the aim is is to run uh separately for the effectively through to Christmas um, and and through that process we get to look at each other's ways of operating and, and practices we know that for example exact has been around 14 years we've been around 10 years exact started as a supply chain consultancy that moved into property effectively and we started as a as a as a project management business that moved into property that moved into supply chain. So the evolution of the business units are almost back to front. Um, so we felt that some of the systems and processes and some of the, the the way they did business in supply chain was beneficial for our business. So we we were looking to at, at a hypothesis level take those systems and bring them into ours and and get the best of both. But our project management systems and our property systems probably were more sophisticated than exact. So we'd be probably looking to bring the exact team into ours. So that was the hypothesis. We want to check that first over the next three months to make sure that's correct. There's a whole integration plan. Obviously, being project managers, we like to um, manage this thing to within an inch of its life. But we there's a whole heap of work streams, which includes people and culture, finance, um, operations, by department. And, and then we're going to put those together. And the aim is to merge the two businesses by the end of the year into one brand. Amazing. That's really good, mate. And I'm appreciative of the fact that you're giving so many just clear and first world insights to people. I know sometimes we can have a tendency to not want to share all of the exact methods that we use because we feel like, as you experienced yourself, even one of your own directors can take it and go and rip it off. But Absolutely. 
you know, I think at the end of the day, the more great people like yourself with real world experience that are wearing the t-shirt that can support the next generation of entrepreneurs to be ethical, you know, honest, hardworking, committed people, then it can only be to the betterment and development of Australia as a country, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me go into this idea of a capital partner then. Um, obviously, uh, Next Capital was your capital partner. They're joint shareholders of the business. But talking around capital raising in its entirety, I believe there's typically four ways to raise capital. Take traditional debt, um, bring in an equity partner by way of releasing some of the shareholding of your business, um, sell assets, your car, your laptop, your house, whatever you own, yeah. um, or sell your product. Um, yes. I obviously have made a career off of the last one of those. Let's not worry about selling 10% of your business. Let's teach your own team how to get your customer to purchase more of your product. Yes. Um, but in those four, looking at debt, equity, asset sales, product sales, kind of excluding product sales, because if we could sell more of our product, we all just would, right? But looking at debt, equity, and selling assets, which of those... Do, do you have an order of priority or do you have circumstances where you feel one is more appropriate than the other? So, so for, for eight years, we, we never used debt. So for us, we always had a cash positive business and didn't have any debt in the business at all. Um, and I'm not saying that's right, wrong or indifferent, but very low barriers to entry into consulting. You go and buy a computer and some software and, and, and get started. Where the barriers to entry into our business become very hard is, is the differing skill sets. You've got to go and put together, um, you know, multiple years of experience and, and make that happen. So I guess in that first eight years, what we used as a growth tool um, to attract the best people into the business uh, was quite a funky um, accounting structure, if I'm honest, on, on how we did that with with a head company being Team Insight and then multiple sub sub companies that, that had separate ownership in each of those companies around property, supply chain uh, and project management to attract the right people into the business. So we actually never gave equity in the top company, but we, we gave a lot of equity below, like gift equity or sweat equity to start um, those business units. So, you know, the first um, change to that was project management between 2012 and 2014 and then uh, 2014, we started the supply chain business, so we we gave up um, uh, equity in that business to bring the right people in that we couldn't afford that that would actually scale and grow the business. And then in 2016, we started a property business. Once again, people we could never have afforded with our where we were. Um, we we used gift equity in a, a business that was worth zero at that point to start and then we created licensing agreements back through the head company. So from a client perspective, the client felt that they were engaging with only one company mm -hmm. uh, and then in the background there was multiple companies. Now, that worked really well to scale rapidly the business and grow it but what ultimately happened and you started to see the signs of siloing into those departments because there's a bit of what's in it for me. If you're an owner of this business, why would I hand things to that business if I have to work a bit harder and don't get paid for it? So... And, and the mentality never got really to that point, but you could feel that that's where it was going to start going, just some of the comments and, and what was starting to happen. And the only person, only two people that had 
a position in each one of those companies was Milan and myself. So we, we had an active role to bring that all together. So one of the big changes that we made um, in 2019 also, which I missed, was actually combining all the businesses together. So we, we created a single entity with a lot of tax advice uh, because they were now worth a lot of money trying to equalise them to value them into a head company. Um, a huge change in our business once we did that, but we would never have got to that point without doing it. So what was good at the time became a, a massive burden for us um, as we tried to scale and grow because it was just holding us back. There was no investment in the business. It was very invested in the sub-businesses. Um, and so what, what ultimately happened there was that allowed us to then bring a capital partner in and that capital partner, I think the reason we, – and we had those options. We had straight debt. You could go and go and get straight debt and just debt fund it. Um, what we wanted to do was become better business people, to be honest. And and the reason we chose private equity, and I know there's a lot of negativity to, to private equity companies out there, we, we were very picky with the people we chose um, and they were like-minded. We spent, oh, I'd hate to think, four months getting to know each other before we actually jumped into bed together to make sure that there was no um, signs that we were going to have a clash anywhere and that we were like-minded and, and we were both sharing the same objective. So for us, the reason we chose private equity is because we both had the same objective in a five-year period to scale and grow the business. So it's a mutual benefit position for both both parties. Um, but you've got to be, you've got to have people that you can sit in with and work with to be able to do that. Uh, with, without the, the alternative to just straight debt funding, which we could have got because we never run with debt and, and we had a cash positive business. The, the issue with, with straight debt funding was we don't become better business people. And that was what we wanted to to become. And I think I think we're becoming that as we're going through that. We're learning how to scale and grow a business from people that have done it for years and years and years. Um, and and from from our perspective, um, you know, the biggest crisis in, in probably living history <laughs> happened two months after the acquisition was finalised. Um, and and lo and behold, you know, it was the most constructive, proactive discussions that we had through those first couple of months together um, about how we come out the other side of this thing. So, so it was proven correct that, that we had a relationship and we could go through that process. And, and, and their whole task is not to get into the day-to-day of our business, it's to help with the strategic um, direction of the business. Yeah, love it. And it, it segues perfectly into my, my final question, mate, and I'll let you get back to it because I could, I could talk to you all morning. But I, um, I'm just thinking that you talked about your um, property business. You then had expanded into a property business. You were able to achieve something through um, equity partners you simply would never have been able to do on your own. You were able to source talent and pay them what they were worth that you would have never been able to afford on your own. So I uh, consider myself to be a property expert. I'm a licensed real estate agent. But I'm a real property nerd. I absolutely love uh, data and analytical information around the Australian property market, pretty much from sort of 1929 to today. Right. So I, I make a living out of assisting people to use their superannuation, set up a self-managed superannuation fund and purchase an investment property. Yep. I have been since February very reluctant to have conversations with people about commercial property. Um, Natural due to the volatility within general stores, um, you know, normal um, office based environments. 
But one thing I'm spotting as a real anomaly in the market is that we are having quite a significant increase in the amount of demand for warehouse spacing. Yeah. Um, specifically for the e-commerce space, I would assume. Um, I'm now also noticing that um, groceries, my, myself, in the last four months, I use a company called HelloFresh, so we no longer go to the supermarket to do our shopping, yeah. um, things of this nature. So, yeah, can I ask, what, what's, what's your belief on the future of how commercial space will be required to continue to support this ever-evolving e-commerce space that we're in? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, for, for, from our perspective, obviously we're very uh, industrial focus or warehousing and distribution. That's it. That's our game, and that's what we've played in since the early two thousands. Um, and, and look, we have we have a lot of skill sets in the office space as well, and and we've we've also played in that space. Um, and, and hotels, and in a previous life form, did retail. So, so we sort of we we understand the markets. I, I think one of the one of the things that's probably that people don't really understand the, the rise in e-commerce definitely brings an attraction to warehouse space. And and if if you look at um, what is happening in e-commerce at the moment, it's it's demanding more space, more spread out space because you're having to go into an inner of a box to go and uh, uh, fulfil an order that otherwise that that whole box would have just gone to a store and then been put on the shelf. So what it means is you need more space to be able to do those sorts of things or you need to automate the space to be able to do it. So um, we we are seeing a significant demand um, and we have for a number of years on on industrial property. We've seen... The big end of town being, um, you know, the the ASX and multinational businesses taking space between sort of twenty and hundred thousand square meters, so mega DC type space. But what we're seeing the rise of, and and we'll continue to see the rise, is that smaller space uh, in those older inner suburban industrial regions of each of the capital cities starting to be backfilled with hyper-local fulfilment operations for retailers. So, and, and, and that's sort of the, the, the in, in inverted commas, uh, <clears throat> the dark store type scenario. So, you know, our, our firm view is that will rise and will rise rapidly. We, we will see multi-level warehousing in, in inner city Sydney and also uh, Melbourne sooner rather than later um, to be able to fulfil the last mile delivery um, components for retailers. So if I was going to invest in a sector, and I know everyone is moving their money into industrial, I, I would be moving towards that way, um, but also thinking about uh, all the inner city um, things that will actually be backfilled by localised demand, not just where are the ASX, you know. Where no, that's right. It'll be it'll be everyone. Um, and so the only question mark to that is probably the, the bulky goods retail in our mind. So, you know, that, that sort of... Um, you see on the highway and there'll, there'll be, you know, four or five big box um, uh, shops next to each other. And, and typically, if, if you look at that, it's like the anything from the Bunnings down type scenario. The question mark there is if we're having this huge demand online and these spaces are set out for big box retail, what, what is going to happen with those is probably the question. Are they going to be converted into grey grey warehouses uh, and grey uh, retail type scenario where part of it is retailing and part of it is is um, is where is sort of um, uh, 
uh, last mile logistics, click and collect, those sorts of things are happening in those in those sort of locations. They're logical because they've got loading docks, they've got large car parks at the front, they've got a lot of access to them. Probably one of the challenges with the straight shopping mall is they're not designed to become distribution hubs. Um, they're designed for, for shopping experiences. So I think, and, and I've seen articles written by by uh, shopping mall owners that talk about, oh, you know, we're going to transform these into grey areas where you can do last mile logistics and also do your shopping. Um, I think it's a little bit more complex than that. They're not designed that way. They're designed for foot traffic. They're designed for people to go and have an experience. Um, I think that bulky goods retail provides probably something a little bit different that, that you could potentially transform. Um, and then definitely, I think councils all around Australia need to stop transitioning all these inner suburban industrial areas into residential or higher, better uses um, because that's going to put a massive supply strain on the con- consumer demand, which is e-commerce and last mile logistics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would invest is the answer, but that's... Uh, oh, yeah. no, I somebody that's there at the absolute coalface in this industry. Yeah. Um, lovely to hear your opinions. Because, yeah, I was reading a little bit from um, a guy, Grant McCasker, one of the UBS analysts, and then um, another guy from JLL, Tolly uh, Il- Iliano. Iliano. Yeah. Yeah, that correctly was... Um, yeah, talking about you know have already having a 7.5% increased demand um, for that space, but they were suggesting by 2025 we're going to need another 1 million square meters in Australia of industrial warehouse space to support our e-commerce demands and needs. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be more than that, to be honest. We, uh, we've already got, I think we were looking at uh, the, the current supply over the next couple of years. It's, it's well beyond that already in our business in terms of the requirements coming to the market. The, the, big, the big challenge with, with the stuff that we're doing, and, and a lot of it is heavily automated, is it's very hard to retrofit some of the things that we're doing into existing facilities. They have to be purpose-built to be able to do it. So... Um, you know, there was a big concern out there probably two to three years ago about existing uh, warehouse that was probably a bit older, lower height roofs, um, older specification floors, those sorts of things being obsolete. Um, and they're probably now starting to come back into their own with last mile logistics opportunities. So, um, which is great, you know, repurposing. Um, it's a really great opportunity for all of those landlords out there that, that own all of those assets um, to potentially repurpose something that could have become obsolete potentially. Um, and But we're, we're going to see the rise of both of those um, over the next... So demand, um, there's not enough space. Um, there's area, whole areas of Melbourne and Sydney that have been rezoned and started building, uh, you know, commercial office towers and, and, res- and residential towers that crack and fall down, you know, in those areas. So... so um, the, the problem's going to be supply and, and gov- government interference uh, in terms of rezoning industrial areas into higher, better uses for more rates. Yeah, no, I couldn't, um, couldn't agree with you more, mate. And it'd be nice to see you guys as, um, you know, good, hard-working local Australian people staying at the forefront 
um, of that continuous growth and innovation as well. So, man, if I had more time, I, I really wanted to get into things like how, how might robotics or, um, you know, things of that nature assist us in the, the pick and pack and the warehousing space and in the distribution space. But um, I do appreciate that I asked you for 45 <laughs> minutes. I've already taken 47 of them. Um, so on behalf of myself, um, the Business News Australia um, team, every single person who, who takes the time each week to listen to these podcasts, thank you um, very much for your openness. And um, we look forward to not doing what Australia is guilty of many times, which is the tall poppy syndrome. And instead, let's all get behind good people like um, Travis and Milan and you know good Australian businesses. And let's keep powering them to the top of uh, the industries that they rightfully operate within. So um, yeah, thank you so much, mate. Real pleasure to have a chat with you. Thank you very much. And thanks for your time. Cheers. No Take care, buddy. All the best. Bye yeah. now. Bye. Bye. This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital work-from-anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360-degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business.